Well, first of all, thank you, Greg, for that ex- extremely kind introduction. Uh, it's, of course, exaggerated, but uh, I appreciate it. Um, I'd also like to uh, take uh, these first few words to uh, thank the Heartland Institute for setting up this conference. It's a lot of work. Uh, you get a lot of abuse from the press uh, in the process of doing it. But it's extremely valuable in giving us an opportunity to talk about this important and uh, highly politicized issue of climate. Uh, I don't know of another place where this would be possible with uh, such freedom. So uh, just to start, I, I hope you'll join me in uh, applauding the Heartland Institute. So. <laughs> Okay, the topic of my uh, talk today is the noble lie. And um, this is, um, let me read what uh, it says in Wikipedia about the noble lie. I'm quoting, in politics, a noble lie is a myth or untruth, often but not invariably of a religious nature, knowingly propagated by an elite to maintain social harmony or to advance an agenda. The noble lie is a concept originated by Plato, as described in The Republic. Well, some of you probably were forced to read The Republic when you were in college. I was. I can't remember anything of that time. But I I read it again just this week, just to refresh my memory. It's kind of tedious, but this part about the noble lie is very interesting. And the the concept of a noble lie is closely related to another uh, concept called the noble cause corruption. And so people study this. They write Ph.D. theses on it. And here's what Wikipedia has to say about noble cause corruption. Where traditional corruption is defined by personal gain, noble cause corruption forms when someone is convinced of their righteousness and will do anything within their powers to achieve the desired result. So does that sound familiar? Hmm. So in in either case, uh, we're dealing with the ancient lie that the ends justify the means. And that's certainly been the case uh, with the climate movement. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, idea of a noble lie goes back to the classical Greek philosophers and probably much further, probably to our caveman ancestors. Uh, In the third chapter of Plato's Republic, Socrates explains uh, that it can be praiseworthy to lie for a good cause. In his case, the noble lie was to justify a stable, stratified society ruled by a philosopher king. Of course, Plato always wanted to be a a philosopher king. So here's what Socrates says. He says the citizens of this ideal society include a small elite, and I quote, who are fitted to hold rule and whose value is like that of gold. The helpers of the elite, one step down in the hierarchy, or, you know, I would call them the deep state and (laughs) <laughs> so to speak, they're, they're like silver. 
and the much more numerous lower classes, the farmers, the factory workers, truck drivers, nurses, others who sustain human society and make our lives possible are, are like brass or at the very bottom iron. So most of us here today would be in Plato's lower classes uh, and expected to follow the instructions of a golden elite. Uh, Plato admits that the justification of this class structure was a lie. He says that in the Republic, but since it supposedly avoided the excesses of mob rule or tyranny, it was good for society. I'm not sure it avoided any of that, but that's what he claimed. So this particular noble lie was uh, alive and well when I was an Edinburgh schoolboy some 70 years ago. It's a long time. So when I was there, we used to recite, and uh, we were never quite sure if it was in jest or not, this quatrain from Charles Dickens. Uh, Some of you may remember it. Oh, let us love our occupations. Bless the squire and his relations. Live upon our daily rations and always know our proper stations. So uh, that's that's the noble lie. Hugh Kendrick probably remembers it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, now uh, let me see. I think I I can advance this. uh, Let me try it. So we're facing a worldwide noble lie today, and the lie is that there is a climate emergency due to CO2 releases from burning fossil fuels. This is indeed a lie. There's no climate emergency. There's no way there will be a climate emergency. But we're all being asked to give up our inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. thought we had fought for those already, to let our betters manage the defeat of this supposedly existential threat of carbon pollution. Carbon pollution, that really grabs me, as all of you there. Here we are breathing out, each of us, two pounds of carbon a day, and this is pollution. And uh, so I've tried hard to think of some reason that the current lie about the climate is noble. And the best I could come up with was a way to unite Mankind against an imaginary common enemy. Uh, this is a classic lie that's often been used in human society, uh, not always for uh, noble reasons, and usually with devastating results, whether the reasons were noble to begin with or not. So examples are uh, supposedly true religion A against supposedly false religion B. Okay. The proletariat against the bourgeoisie, eh, a noble lie, actually an evil lie. Or the eugenics movement, which were so popular in America to divide mankind into master races and inferior races. Uh, It was a big deal in America and many other countries of the world a hundred years ago. So the newest common enemy is carbon dioxide, atmospheric carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels and other human activities. Well, many people here in the audience could give compelling scientific reasons and economic reasons for why the claim of a climate emergency is a lie. If you attend the talks, and I hope you will catch as many as you can, you'll hear some of the reasons. 
these include fundamentals of thermodynamics, uh, fundamentals of radiation transfer physics, uh, fluid dynamics, uh, the geological record of Earth's past climate, and the biology of how plants and animals actually live. They're all, all benefited by CO2. In addition to these scientific arguments uh, against the climate lie, some speakers at our conference discuss weighty economic and policy arguments against it. So if you step back and look at the truth, there's really nothing supporting this lie, and so at least there's nothing noble about it. So let me just review for you, I probably don't have to here, the, the facts about the supposed pollutant carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide gas, which I'm spouting out here as I'm talking and you're breathing out down there. So increasing levels of the main anthropogenic uh, greenhouse gas, CO2, will certainly cause a small amount of warming. Nobody knows how much that is. You know, that's the famous climate sensitivity. My own guess is it's less than one degree centigrade, which you wouldn't even feel if you double CO2. Other peoples have other gases. You know, we, we can talk about that. But whatever it is, it's certainly not an existential threat. And more likely, almost certainly, it will be beneficial, not harmful. Uh, agri- as I think you all know, more CO2 is very good for agriculture, forestry. You know, yields in both of those have been increasing steadily. For agriculture, there's a confounding factor that people are learning how to farm better. They're using more and more effectively using fertilizer. But for forestry, really none of those things are are there. And forests, too, are responding dramatically. Your trees are growing a lot faster now than they did 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. Atmospheric CO2 concentrations have been dangerously low in our contemporary geological period, the last million years or so. There's really quite good evidence of CO2 starvation, plant starvation, during the most recent glacial maximum. Uh, Papers are written on the good peer-reviewed papers. Uh, There's not much doubt about that, especially at high altitudes. Plants are already responding very positively to the CO2 increases in the past century. And more... CO2 will cause more benefits, uh, no, no emergencies, only benefits. Well, of course, the, uh, the climate Gestapo, uh, depend, you know, demands that any who state these truths be, I'll, I'll use the words reprobated and uh, condemned, which I picked out of a uh, medieval book. Uh, it's, uh, let me see if I can put this on the screen. Here it is, uh, Malleus Maleficarum. You know, my Latin's not very good. But this was written in the late 1400s, and it was a textbook on how to find witches and hang them, you know, and torture them properly before you sent them on their way. And uh, witches in the 14th hundreds in Europe in the 1500s and up to the late 1600s in America, in Massachusetts, uh, were the equivalent of CO2 uh, molecules today. You know, they were Satan's instrument, you know, for evil on earth. 
there's an introduction to this uh, Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, it was a very famous book. It came along just as printing was invented, so it was widely uh, read. And uh, the introduction was written by the uh, faculty of the of theology at the University of Cologne in Germany. And here's what they say. Uh, so I'm quoting now. It, it was written in Latin, but it's, this is an English translation. Whereas some who have the charge of souls and are preachers of the word of God have been so bold as to assert and declare publicly in discourses from the pulpit, yea, in sermons to the people, that there are no witches, or that these wretches cannot in any way whatever molest or harm either mankind or beasts. And it has happened that as a result of such sermons, which are much to be retrobated and condemned, you know, this sermon would be retrobated and condemned, the power of the secular arm has been hindered in the punishment of such offenders. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on like that for, for many tedious pages. So this pious nonsense continues for uh, a long time. And and as I said, the faculty of theology at Cologne uh, 100% supported this prologue, you know, these these crazy words. So this was 100% academic consensus, you know, 100%, not 97%, 100%, and and 100% wrong. So think about that next time you hear about 97% uh, scientific support. Well, the Reformation, which followed the publication of Malleus Maleficarum a few decades later, made matters worse. The Protestant and Catholic churches competed to save humanity from the witch emergency. There was unquestioning government support for the witch haunts. It's Reminds me a little bit about Europe, Great Britain in particular, you know, where the two major parties uh, outdo each other to, in crazy climate policy. Well, uh, I think we all would say the lie about witches was not uh, noble but was evil. And it's interesting to note that one of the false accusations against witches was that they caused extreme weather. Uh, so... <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let me also point out that the judges at the Salem, uh, Massachusetts witch trials around the year 1690, every one of them had a degree from Harvard. Uh, <laughs> nobody had a Princeton degree. Uh, Princeton wasn't founded then, so I, I, we probably got off easy. Uh, One of the instigators of the trials, Cotton Mather, profited handsomely from the sale of his book, The Wonders of the Invisible World. This this book told you how to ferret out witches and how to uh, properly try them before you executed them. And it was published just uh, a few months after the last execution, sold very well. So Cotton Mather is still honored at Harvard to this day. So uh, some academics have played a similar role in justifying the noble lie of a climate crisis. Well, I think many of you are familiar with uh, this wonderful uh, comment by Mencken, this great journalist. Uh, If you don't know it, memorize it. You can use it. It's so true. 
the climate lie is a political lie, too, and, and according to Mencken, the whole purpose of political, of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and, hence, clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. So climate change is the ultimate hobgoblin. Climate has changed since the world began. Climate will continue to change as long as the world exists. But humans have little to do with climate change. The sun heats a dynamic, rotating planet Earth. Uh, You can go out today and see the sun moving across the sky. And it's uh, composed of two complicated, turbulent uh, fluid systems, our atmosphere with its winds and hurricanes and nice calm weather, and the oceans, uh, which are even more complicated. And uh, if you've ever been in physics, you would know that fluids are are extremely fickle and very difficult to predict. Uh, Some of you may know the... uh, comment attributed to the great German physicist Werner Heisenberg, one of the co-inventors of quantum mechanics, who uh, described what was on his agenda uh, on his first meeting with the Almighty after his death. And so he was hoping he would have an audience. uh, And he said, when I meet God, I'm going to ask him two questions. Why relativity? And why turbulence? And uh, I really believe he will have an answer for the first. (laughs) So Heisenberg was convinced that relativity was a lot easier than turbulence, uh, which it is. That's completely true. So uh, now um, this worthy uh, goal of understanding climate, it is important that we understand it as well as we can, but it's been set back drastically by all of the alarm over climate uh, because uh, you really can't get support for research in climate unless you salute the uh, dogma that CO2 is the control knob for climate. If you want the earth to get warmer, you dial up the CO2. If you want it cooler, you dial it down, you know, just like the control knob on your uh, amplifier, audio amplifier. But it's a, it's patently wrong. I mean, for example, CO2 has been relatively constant for the last 12,000 years, uh, since the end of the last ice age, and there have been massive changes in the Earth's temperature and climate, uh, much larger than what we've experienced in the last 100 years, with no change of CO2. So even a little familiarity with facts lets you recognize that uh, this is a lie that's being pushed, that CO2 is the control knob. Other factors that are at least as important, maybe more, are changes in the sun. Willie soon can tell you about that. Volcanic activity, internal variability of the atmosphere uh, just by itself is enough to cause huge variations. And uh, there are complicated periodic changes in the oceans. uh, And all of these... uh, produce effects which are much larger than the tiny effects of doubling the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. So there's no theoretical support for CO2 changes being a major factor in climate change. Instantaneously doubling CO2 will only decrease radiation to space by about 1%, 
And IPCC agrees with that. You know, they don't advertise it, but if you look carefully, yes, it's true. Doubling CO2 at best is a 1% change in the climate, in, in the radiation to space. So the big problem for IPCC is how to change this molehill, this tiny change from doubling CO2 to a threatening mountain, you know, of uh, climate disaster, climate emergency. And so that's why all the money is being spent on ever more elaborate computer programs. If you make it sufficiently elaborate, nobody knows what's in it, including the people who wrote it. And so you can't tell what the results mean. You know, they, they probably don't mean anything. But, you know, all of them are designed to amplify this tiny 1% effect and make it 2%, 3%, 4%, you know, as much as possible. That's positive feedback, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard lots about positive feedback. Positive feedback is very unusual in nature. In fact, most feedbacks in nature are negative, and that's been enshrined in a principle, the Chatelier's principle, and Le Chatelier's principle, again, according to Wikipedia, is, I'll read it to you, when a settled system is disturbed, it will adjust to diminish the change that has been made to it. And if you've ever worked in chemistry and other things like that, you'll recognize that most of the systems you work on have that property, that feedbacks tend to be negative. It's very unusual to find a positive feedback, but supposedly there's not only a positive feedback for climate, but it's very, very big, which doesn't agree with the geological record. So in summary, the claim of a climate emergency is, is a lie, and the closest thing to something noble about it would be the same as Plato's noble lie. It's an excuse for a small world elite to gain total control of mankind. Uh, uh, the noble lie supports the great reset that we heard about uh, last night. And uh, so at least for the proponents of the great reset, it is noble. But for most of the rest of us, it's not. Um, well, uh, I, I'm probably running on a little bit too long. How much time do I have left, uh, Jim? Well, I'll, I'll try and finish up here quickly. So, uh, most of the climate lie it, it has no fig leaf of nobility. It's purely rent-seeking and greed by uh, purveyors of green en energy, sustainability, uh, metastasizing bureaucracies, and never-ending academic research, etc. Al Gore's defense of the planets made him a very wealthy man. You can hear lots about the ignoble lie at various talks this weekend, so I'll limit myself to summarizing the situation with a single view graph. Let me put this up here, if I can get it to go. <laughs> so this is, uh, I would say, a good fraction of what we see in uh, all the climate frenzy is an ignoble lie, and this is, uh, maybe some of you, and this is for the benefit of the few of you in the audience who are you know Russian, but because it sounds so good in Russian, it's one of these pithy Russian proverbs. But what it says is, um, all you need is a trough, and there will be pigs. And <laughs> yeah. 
This is by, uh, by the way, this is from uh, Alexander Pushkin, who's my favorite Russian author. Uh, he's an amazing guy. He, uh, his great-grandfather was a, a black African slave who was given to Peter the Great, you know, as a gift by the Turkish ambassador. And so Pushkin was very proud of the fact that he was partly Negro. And uh, he really was the, the closest thing Russia has ever produced to Shakespeare, you know, in terms of literary talent. And this comes from a, a novella he wrote about a, a noble lie that led to the uh, ruination of a poor but honest Russian uh, gentleman, you know, by uh, a predatory, more powerful neighbor. It's called Dubrovsky. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. Okay, well, um, so that's the ignoble lie. So, um, green rent sitters, rent seekers are going to get rich just like uh, uh, the villain in Dobrovsky here, uh, at the expense of decent, ordinary citizens who are forced to accept unreliable, expensive, electrical power from environmentally devastating wind and solar power sources. I can't tell you how it turns my stomach. At Princeton, I go out and I see a bunch of green fields covered with these black solar panels, you know, weeds growing between them, you know. You know, what a disgrace, you know. Really good farmland. And, and of course, most of the time, they're not working. (laughs) Uh, Well, let me close by... uh, addressing, I think, our biggest problem, and that is that lots of well-meaning fellow citizens have have drunk the Kool-Aid, as they say, and they they think there really is a crisis. Uh, So in their case, the the problem is not malice. It's not that they're evil. In fact, quite the contrary, they want to save the the world, save the planet. And uh, so this brings to mind uh, the story of Jan Hus, the great uh, uh, reformer of the church a hundred years before uh, Newton. Hus was a Czech uh, prelate, uh, a uh, member of the church, and uh, he didn't like what was going on in 1400. For example, you could buy indulgences, so if you had committed so many sins that you really deserved to go to hell, you you paid enough to the church, you could buy your way out, you know, and um, your gardener had stolen, stolen an apple, went to hell. You, you went to heaven because you paid enough. Well, that didn't seem very just to Hoos, and uh, he objected to it. And uh, as a result, he was eventually burnt at the stake. And so the, as he was burning, let me show you a picture. There he is. There's Jan Hoos. And... Uh, a woman, there's the woman there coming up to the bonfire. It, it was a wet day. It wasn't burning very well. She, so she brought a big load of dry brush to throw onto the fire. And, of course, she hadn't a clue that Jan Hus was actually on her side, had done everything possible to help her and the other simple people, you know, from the predations of, you know, the rich and powerful. But And so she throws her bunch of uh, dry brush on the fire which blazes up and who says Sancta Simplicitas it's uh, a misspelling there anyway Sancta Simplicitas uh, holy innocence 
And so we, we have this problem with many of our fellow citizens. They're like this old woman. They have been misled. If they really knew what was going on, they would not be throwing fuel on the fire the way they're doing. So um, I think one of our principal aims is somehow we've got to reach out to our fellow citizens who have drunk the Kool-Aid and uh, try to persuade them that uh, it's not true. It's not true. So uh, I'll summarize this with a final uh, geograph here. Uh, so uh, this is Pogo, who got many things right. One of them was we've met the enemy, and he is us. If you look at the original cartoon, what Pogo's looking at is a, a polluted section of the swamp. It's covered with plastic and beer cans and junk, you know, old tires and stuff like that. So uh, many well, well-meaning people have been brainwashed into believing there really is a climate emergency. There is not, but they believe it very sincerely. Uh, credulous children have been one of the saddest victims of this poisonous propaganda. I was really touched listening to Anthony Watts uh, last night telling about his daughter's experience, uh, learning about, about the Pacific gyre of plastic waste, which didn't exist. But the poor children, how were they to know? They completely uh, believed it, you know. Are we supposed to not believe our teachers, you know, these figures of authority that we trust? Uh, the answer is no, you shouldn't. And uh, 2,000 years ago, a great teacher commenting on someone who would lie to children said, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so lots of little ones are being caused to stumble today, perhaps by people who've stumbled themselves who don't realize what they're saying. Well, we have a busy schedule. I promised uh, Jim I'd, I'd finish on time, and I will, so I'll stop. And I wish you success in spreading the word, hopefully, to our fellow citizens. Uh, this is not going to be easy, so I'll end with one last quote, this one from Mark Twain, uh, who said, It's easier to fool people than to persuade them they've been fooled. Okay, so best wishes to all of you.